Hello and welcome to the Met Aaron podcast. I'm Liz Walsh. I'm Noel Fitzpatrick and we're delighted to be back for our first episode of 2022. This month, we are looking at the future of forecasting and the advancements that will help us predict our weather. So one of the forecasting advancements that we've, we've talked a little bit about before is ensemble forecasting. Listeners will have known from a previous episode called Chaos and Computing in Weather Forecasting. We talked to Alan Halley about this form of uh, predicting the weather. Liz, can you give us an overview of what ensemble forecasting is? Yeah, sure thing, Noel. So we know the forecast is an example of a chaotic system, okay? So most people um, have heard of this thing called the butterfly effect. Um, so the idea that small things matter. So tiny changes in initial conditions can lead to large scale and unpredictable variations in the future state of a chaotic system. So in terms of weather forecasting, we want to have really good initial conditions so we can forecast what our weather will do. And if we miss even a very small aspect of our initial conditions, the forecast we get at the end will be completely different. So the end result of the weather forecast is tied to how accurate those initial conditions are. Now, what does that kind of do in terms of, of ensemble forecasting? Well, the, the Earth's atmosphere, we have an issue because although we can approximate what the weather is doing now with satellites and radar and all these different ground and ships yes, and yes. aircraft stuff, um, our aircraft radio sound observations, we don't have an obse observation for every single bit of the atmosphere not just at ground level but you know you'd need observations need every like, layer yeah, yeah every that. layer up, yeah. you know five miles up 10 miles up you know the the initial conditions of the atmosphere are always going to be approximated and this creates differences in the forecast further out so what ensemble forecasting tries to do is to take into account that there are differences in what the current state of the atmosphere is so instead of running just one model and getting one answer, you run the model like multiple times, like 10, 12, 40, 50, 100 times um, to get 10, 12, 40, 50, 100 answers, okay? And so the ensemble members are different from one another um, because their initial conditions are slightly different. So um, they get nudged slightly at the start. So okay, and that's accounting for the fact, as you say, that maybe our initial conditions are, are not exactly perfect or not exactly accurate, or as you say, maybe we don't have a measurement in every location in the atmosphere. Yeah, so the idea is, is that if your model is configured correctly, um, the correct forecast is somewhere within those 10 or 40 ensemble forecasts. Um, and you can perform statistical analysis to figure out which one of those forecasts is the most likely forecast. So, yeah, I think like, you know, back in chaos and confusion, it was like Alan talked about a horse race. If you're, you know, you're going and you bet on a horse um, and you just got one horse that you bet on and to win the race. And sure, he might win or he might not. But if like if you bet on all the horses in the race, one of them's going to win. <laughs> and that that's what that's what ensemble forecasting is about. OK, so anyway. you're you're uh, in this analogy as the forecaster, you are you are the better and uh, your ultimate goal is to get to get the accurate forecast or to get a get a winner i suppose yeah. um how is ensemble forecasting of benefit say to you when, when you're when you're forecasting on, on a day-to-day -day basis well um ensemble forecasting like if you like it's probabilistic forecasting so 
say you have 10 ensemble forecasts and nine of them are saying it's going to be raining in Cork tomorrow afternoon, okay? And the 10th one is dry. So um, as a forecaster, I can say that the probability of rain in Cork tomorrow afternoon is 90% because nine out of 10 are saying, you know, it's going to rain. Um, so, so how that benefits me is that I can give a confidence level um, to, to the forecast. So I would consider that as like rain is expected in Cork tomorrow afternoon. <laughs> um, and so what I communicate to um, Mr. Joe Public would be, you better bring an umbrella if you're out and about tomorrow afternoon in Cork um, or don't hang out your washing if you don't want it to get wet. Um, <laughs> so it's a very yeah. honest way, really, of presenting the weather, right? In, in terms of rather than just saying this is the one track, this is what's going to happen. You're actually there's a lot of honesty in, in that way of, of presenting the forecast. You're saying there is uncertainty, but we think it's pretty certain or there's there's loads of uncertainty. We're not sure exactly. You know, there's maybe only 20 percent certainty. So it's, it's a it it informs. Uh, about the uncertainty in weather forecasting. Yeah, the weather forecast is not a sure thing. We can't say like for with complete certainty that a certain thing is going to happen. So um, so we what we have is a best guess. Kind of gets interesting then in warnings because when you're issuing thresholds and, and warnings, it's kind of like um, how do you communicate a 10% chance of a hurricane force gust? Because like that's a really terrible kind of uh you know high like high wind that could cause lots of damage but it's only a 10 percent chance okay. um so it, the way you communicate that can be um can be difficult and and you know that's one of the i guess that's one of the things you know ensemble forecasting and communicating the message like you know it gets a bit uh, hairy sometimes i could imagine <laughs> and particularly as you say with severe weather events just i'd imagine it is very useful as a tool if you are working out say for example where the landfall of a storm is going to be you know you might you might not be exactly certain particularly you know, can, even a small little change in the in the system as it's coming in can 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 dramatically influence where the strongest winds come in things like that so by having that range of forecasts you can say okay well we know the strongest winds are going to fall somewhere within this you know uh section along the coastline or something like that so it's it's allowing you to to give a range rather than trying to say specifically it's definitely going to be here and i guess that range then narrows down the closer you get to to, to landfall yeah like totally absolutely right because you know we're, we're already in a way you might not think it but we already do communicate probability in certain ways like you know just even in the in the forecast today we might be saying temperatures um will range from eight to 11 degrees that's a probability forecast you know you have a likelihood of seeing that um, the temperature could be as low as eight degrees, or it might be as high as 11 degrees, depending on your location kind of thing. So it's like, we're already giving a probability forecast there. And at the same time, um, you know, we don't say that the wind speed will reach 60 kilometers per hour at say Roaches Point. Um, we say that the winds, you know, will reach, will reach speeds of between 55 and 65 kilometers per hour with gusts of 90 to 110 kilometers per hour. So that's, it doesn't mean that, you know, Roaches Point's going to see, a, uh, so somewhere within that range, you know, Roaches Point is going to see maybe a mean wind speed, possibly, a, you know, 59 kilometers per hour, gusting to 100, 100 kilometers per hour, you know, so we're, we're kind of communicating the probability of something happening um, uh, in terms of a range kind of thing. Yeah, that's a good point, that actually. Idea. We're already, like, as, as a 
as a member of the public or as a user of weather data, we are already used to hearing uh, weather data expressed as a range. As you say, you know, the wind will probably be in this range or uh, the time for, for when we think we might have precipitation likely within this time. So this is another aspect of that. It's, it's a range of, of likelihood that these events will actually occur. Yeah, no, it's like, uh, totally. Um, I think, like, from the perspective of what ensemble forecasting does, it, <clears throat> it gives the forecaster a confidence, like, like I said, it gives the forecaster a confidence level. Um, and as the models get more sophisticated, the role of the weather forecaster is likely to become more and more about communication. Um, you become more like a risk assessor or a consultant. Um, so, in a way, like with the changing that changing role of the forecaster is like it's morphing from what the weather will be to what the weather is going to do um, and in order to do that um, we need to develop a multidisciplinary approach um, to weather forecasting um, so it can't just be um, I have this much confidence that this amount of rain is going to fall it's going to be more like I need to go and ask a flood expert what levels are the rivers at um, how waterlogged are the soils, because that will determine how much flooding will occur as a result of that amount of forecast rain that I think is going to fall. Um, and similarly, like you said, if a storm's coming in, is it coinciding with spring tide? What does that mean from a coastal flooding point of view? Um, and, you know, even like something as simple as like, what day of the week is it? What, what time of the year is it? Um, are there multiple outdoor events happening? So that evolution of the relationship between the weather forecaster and civil protection is going to become more and more important in identifying what the vulnerability is to a particular weather setup. Um, and ensemble forecasting helps with that because we, we can give a more probabilistic view of, of things. We're not just saying this will definitely happen. We can, we can tell civil protection there's a 30% a likelihood of wind speeds above this threshold um now you tell us what kind of and and then they can make decisions based on 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 that information um so it's, it's kind of working together with with different um, agencies so you know and, and and as you highlighted sort of you're saying you know maybe there's only a 10 percent chance of hurricane force winds but the impact of those winds is going to be severe so you're giving it a higher sort of you're giving it more focus i guess because of the fact that the impacts, or as you say, if a storm is going to arrive at the same time as high tide, that's a that's a big impact event. Exactly, exactly. I think all, like all of these things, like what it's going to mean for forecasters is like we'll have to be familiar with the pros and cons of improved models. Okay, um, you know, understanding ensemble prediction systems and how to communicate them properly, and then we'll have to have knowledge of the different end users um, of that information, what their needs are the specifics, the reaction time that they need, um, the threat, their thresholds for severe weather events. And um, we'll actually have to maybe develop their level of understanding. Um, I was just going to say, yeah. it's a two-way street, right? I mean, you, you've yeah. got a lot to contend with there in terms of not only as a forecaster, are they understanding a whole new way of, of receiving that weather information and, and making you know judgment calls and giving uh, likelihoods that the listener and the, and the public needs to be comfortable with with absorbing that information as well yeah like you know that, that's when like you know language becomes um important i think like how we put up text forecasts and what um certain words mean 
like you know what does chance of mean what does possibility of or probability of what does likelihood mean what does very likely mean what does expected mean you know so things like chance of could be a five to twenty percent you know chance a possibility could be well there's a possibility of fog there's a 20 to 40 percent chance this rain is very likely tomorrow afternoon in Cork there's a 60 to 80 percent chance you know so like and and studies have shown that I mean, you know, rather than the words and forecasts, people actually respond better to seeing percentages and figures in terms of um, weather forecasting. So, you know, icons like, you know, they respond to pictures, colors and, and, and numbers. Of course. And, yeah. um, and so maybe the text forecast will become less important. I don't know, <laughs> um, because uh, different you know, words and how people communicate and understand words, you know, can of course, affect yeah. people's understanding. We've we, we we a lot of loose definitions of those terms that you've just used as well. So it is probably, you know, as to what's likely, what's probable, what's possible. So yeah. it's, it's good to get it the... was It would be, yeah, it would, um, it would differ from person to person what they attribute to that, um, to that word, you know, it's interesting to see um, what, what percentage they would put beside a certain word. So maybe it's a clearer message as to say, you know, the icon, the color, the percentage <laughs> and then Absolutely. the text underneath. <laughs> and we've, we've had ensemble forecasting for a while. We, the European Center for, for Medium Range uh, Weather Forecasts use ensemble forecasting. And uh, here in, in, in Met Aaron, we've, we've started uh, over the last few years utilizing ensemble forecasting as well in our IREPS forecast system. So it's certainly something that's uh, present already but will be continuing to be de developed and advanced and rolled out uh, as we go forward into the future yeah and in fact um we've actually just put up an, um the new ensemble forecast probability maps on the medairn website um just the other week um so they're available um under um ensemble forecast probability maps on the website <laughs> um so we have you know a set of pictures like you know there's um, of six and 24 hour precipitation and um, and the probability of mean wind and gust parameters as well over certain thresholds um, and and there's a little key on the bottom on the bottom saying you know a color code um, giving the percentage of, of what what the color means you know how lightly something is um, so you know have a gander if you're having a look around the web the Medairn website so like we've talked about all these um, you know developments that might happen in the future with forecasting but um there's another um collaboration that's that's out there now and and it's called the uwc um west um project i think it, it was in the news um there before christmas that's right um, yeah. but yeah there are several countries um interested in forecasting for the same area and we're one of them can you tell me a little bit more about this uwc project no yes well it's, it's exactly that as, as as you see yourself Liz. i mean whether it knows no borders, right? So there's there's often several countries that are interested in weather in the same region. That is the case for this collaboration, UWC West or United Weather Centers West. So it involves ourselves, Denmark, Iceland, and the Netherlands. And essentially we're, we're developing a weather model that will cover all those countries. So basically Northwest Europe, and then uh, the Atlantic, the bordering Atlantic region as well. And the idea is that we will collaborate and combine our resources to develop a, a high resolution and high accuracy model and run that together uh, for those regions. Uh, at the moment, it's, it's sort of heavily underway in terms of preparations and planning. And the idea is that this will go operational 
uh, from early next year. Okay, so basically this is all about you're using high performance computing. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So- high performance computing. So again, going back to that the 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 episode that we referenced before with chaos and computing, when we were talking to Alan Halley, high performance computing HPC. Sometimes it's referred to as essentially supercomputers, computers that that fill up a whole room essentially, and these are required to run uh, weather models, particularly a model that's going to cover quite a large area and that we want to run very, very frequently and at high resolution. So we'll need to obtain a a HPC or high performance computer system uh, to run this model. So the the, the four countries, as said, under UWS are going to team up and operate one of these uh, HPC systems and then run this, this high resolution model on those. Like I know that Met Aaron already we run high computing models. Um, I think like they're based in ECMWF. Is that right at the moment? That's right. We run. We've sort of half of our resources are, are at that the European Centre for for medium range uh, weather forecasts, and we also have resources at the Dutch Weather Service KNMI. So this was kind of like a an initial step into this collaboration. We we started collaborating with the Dutch Weather Service first. Uh, we run some of our computer models there. And then uh, we're, we're expanding now from next year into this four country collaboration. And so who's going to run the system in the end? Is it going to be KNMI or is it somebody else? Yeah, so, so what we've done is this HPC system, this big supercomputer is going to be located in Iceland, in Reykjavik, at mm-hmm. the, the Icelandic uh, Meteorological uh, Organization offices there. That's an interesting location, I guess. Um, like, is there a particular reason for that? Or for sure. So there was those, you know, fairly robust analysis done on different locations for the system. But Iceland has quite a few natural sort of positives in its favor. So one of the big ones is there's lots of renewable energy sources on Iceland. So primarily geothermal energy, so where you're you're drawing heat up from the ground. And this is because the fact that uh, Iceland is is a volcanically active location so you're able to obtain lots of energy from the ground and convert that into electricity so what it means for something like a hpc system or a data center which are really really energy hungry you can get lots of uh, relatively low cost energy which keeps the cost of the project down but more importantly it's renewable so it keeps the carbon uh, footprint of the project quite quite low Sort of in tandem with that, then Iceland is obviously uh, quite a cool country. So the air temperatures, the sort of the ambient air temperatures on average are quite cool. So it means that uh, for cooling your data center, so as people know, for even for your own computer, it, it generates a lot of heat. So you can imagine a supercomputer produces a lot of heat. To keep it performing well, you need to keep it quite cool. So if you house your system in somewhere like Iceland, you can use the ambient air for cooling without much need for artificial cooling. So that, again, will help lower costs, lower energy costs, and reduce the carbon footprint of the, uh, of the whole system. Sounds like a perfect location um, to run, um, run this high-performance computing system for four countries. Brilliant. For four countries, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and with that, with, with four countries, as you can imagine, there are a lot of people relying on that data, right? Because it's 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 the weather forecast for for these countries and for all their public services and so so you also have to be certain that your your system that's running these uh, models and these is super secure and super reliable so that's another big aspect of of what went into deciding on iceland so the system itself is going to be stored inside a bunker 
So this was essentially an old uh, Cold War bunker. It used to be the location for Iceland's national power company, the control center for it. And it was put there because it's super resilient against natural and man-made disasters. There's been loads of sort of risk analysis done for it to make sure it's uh, resilient to like volcanic or earthquake uh, activity, or then obviously nuclear events, things like that. And it has loads of redundancy as well. It has something like four different power supplies running into the building. There are like two diesel generators in case they go out. And then there's lots of data communications lines running into the building as well. So the whole idea is that it's super resilient um, and there's lots of redundancy there because of the fact that so many different people and so many agencies and decisions will be relying on this, this flow of information. And I suppose that kind of feeds into um, the long range plans of the UWC project. They might add more countries in the, in the long range plan. Is that the, is that what's on the card? Yeah, absolutely. So they're saying it should should go operational from next year, from 2023, and then run through 2027. And then beyond that point, the plan is to team up with another six countries. So Nordic, some Nordic countries and other European countries to be. Um, so at the moment, it's called UWC West. And then when it from 2028 or so onwards, it'll just be UWC. So so 10 countries and, and potentially more likely that the, the the system in Iceland will continue to run and then we will, we will combine with other resources in other countries as well. Um, but the whole idea is to collaborate on the resources that we have, the experience that we have for both modeling and computer science, and then also for uh, how those products are used for generate or how those that data is used rather for generating useful products of forecasting rather than us all sort of trying reinventing our own wheels we might as well collaborate and uh, make as much use out of our, our merged resources as possible it's really cool that Aaron is involved in something like this you know um i suppose like it's it's also our, our geographic location like you know on the on the edge of the north atlantic and we would have similar we'd want similar regional forecasts for the north atlantic to iceland i guess <laughs> And, definitely yeah and, and that exactly as you say that location is so important i mean that the location that the models will cover is obviously something that is comes with compromise you know because ireland for example the atlantic you know the west and the southwest as you well know is where a lot of our weather comes from so we really want to have model coverage out that way so for our our weather model to cover that area whereas some of the other countries in the collaboration are more interested in other locations but it is very useful for us to be involved in this because we, as I said, we get that coverage, but we also get some other areas that maybe our own model doesn't cover at the moment. So it's actually expanding uh, the area of, of forecast coverage that we have. So we'll just expect that the forecasts are just going to get, you know, better. Just, you know, as a, you know, once we get to 2023, it's all just going to take off. Uh, <laughs> well, our, for, our forecasters will... Uh, We'll have all that information to sift through anyway. So we'll see that again. That's always the thing. It's it's more data and more information. So it's about using it uh, as wisely as possible because more information doesn't necessarily mean better information. You want to try and refine it down. And that will be the case. Like we'll have all this data coming in, but then we'll make localized products, say for Ireland, things that are relevant to Ireland in terms of, you know, obviously the, the standard stuff of rain and wind and all that stuff, but also like say road ice or uh, looking at flooding, all those kinds of things, local applications, and that'll be where that'll be where the strength of all that data will, will come come to fore. There's lots of data coming in these days, as you as you well know. I mean, we've data from all different sources, not just modeling. We have sort of observations coming from what we call remote sensing, which is 
essentially uh, things like satellite imagery or radar data and that's at the moment that's that's a, a big part of, of forecasting and imagine laser i mean day to day i'm sure satellite and radar data is something that you use frequently oh it's the first thing first thing i look at you know you, you come in in the morning um and yeah i mean the the first thing to look at for a forecast is what's happening now um that's that's the most important thing that you can do is like check what are the what are the observations what what's happening on the satellite what's happening on the radar and that's just you know you can zoom in um you know using infrared and and visible imagery as well so like this time of year we're always waiting for that first visible image to come to come up because it's a little because bit it's, later it's dark yeah of course yeah, yeah, yeah it's dark so you're left with um infrared and infrareds it's good um you know but sometimes the the cloud can be a bit bit opaque and and you don't you're not really seeing the detail like you know fog banks and stuff like that whereas once the the sun rises and you get that visible satellite image in the morning on a winter's morning and you can see where the fog is um like so important to the aviation forecasters um as well to know um where where that is and also just being able to you know the satellite just being able to see the movement of the clouds and how things are developing and and then truth testing against that with the, the pseudo satellite in the in the model is the model capturing it correctly like you know can i trust the forecast <laughs> um or do i need to pay more attention to my observations and um see oh maybe the forecast's going wrong maybe i need to step in here and um you know tweak the forecast a bit to what i'm actually seeing as compared to what the model is showing me okay that's interesting so, so it's not only just for say issuing uh, advisory based on what's happening right now but also it's giving you a sense of how your forecast is trending you're sort of well actually the forecast and what's happening now might not be that well aligned at the moment so it gives you a sense of maybe the forecast is going to be off a little bit going forward yeah you know because we don't just look at one model obviously like you know but we might like go in and just see like you know well which forecast model is handling the situation best at the moment so the satellite is a really good tool for for figuring that stuff out there's also different parameters that you can look at um, in a satellite. Like there's a something called a RGB or red, green, blue um, yeah. <laughs> kind of things where you can figure out what type of air mass it is. Like, you know, so, you know, there's these different tools inside the satellite and you can turn them, switch them on and off and, and see, is this a dry air mass or is it moist? Um, and that will like, it'll be different colors will show you like, you know, that kind of information. So there's an awful lot that you can actually glean from from satellites and radar too. I mean, we have we have two radars at the moment, one in Shannon and one in Dublin. Um, yeah, but uh, we're looking at um, expanding that network um, in the next few years. So that's something that um, we'll be looking forward to, especially you know with just Dublin and, and Shannon, like you know, really like the limitations of radar. Um, For sure. Know. Yeah, because yeah. radar naturally sort of, it's it's good up to about 100 kilometers from where your radar unit is, like say in a, in a, in a circle around, in a radius around. But yeah, yeah I, once that. you drop that, it's it's quite tricky to, to get a good good measurements from it. So it, that'll, be, that'll be a great improvement, both for, no doubt for yourselves, for forecasters, or for people who, you know, using the app or using the website. I know talking to people, it's one of the most popular uh things to look at whether it's you know just going in to check to see if you can nip out for a quick walk or whatever you know you see is the radar showing rain on its way um so having more of those dotted around the country 
would be a, a great asset. Absolutely. Um, yeah, because it's like it's this idea. I think I was I was explaining it to some customers recently, like, you know, that, you know, the difference with the satellite is like you know, satellites 36,000 kilometers up, <laughs> up in the up in the space looking down and it's taking a picture. But the, the radar is on the ground, so it's a beam facing up and the further out from the beam you are, the less, you know, the less accurate it becomes. So so the Dublin radar probably isn't a good representation of what's happening in Donegal, um, you know, um, and um, if you, if you're, even if you're seeing rain on the radar in Donegal, well, that rain might be happening high up in the atmosphere, but it might not be hitting the ground um, exactly, and yeah. that kind of aspect of it. So um, definitely, I know that that's one of the first radars they want to put up is one in the, in northwest, the northwest for sure somewhere in the yeah, northwest sure. <laughs> um, to, to, to help out the northwest because there is a there is a gap um mm. up there as i'm sure um the people of Donegal may and Sligo are well aware and, and blocking as well as a big thing i know say for example the one in dublin with the wicklow mountains just to the south you get a it, it it blocks the beam of the radar from seeing further south of that and also similarly the one in shannon there are various sort of landform blockages that that mean that certain regions you don't get as good coverage so the more the more you have you can sort of work around those blockages and fill in the gaps so to speak but you mentioned there about satellites also there is quite a selection of new satellites being launched over the next over the next few years um, which will also be a a major uh, benefit to forecasters going forward because many different reasons including increased coverage and increased frequency of updates things like that maybe one of the ones to focus on uh, is what's called uh, meteosat so there are there have been two previous generations of meteosat satellites so the weather satellites launched by europe um, and the third generation is going to go up uh, soon the first of these will launch at the end of this year so meteosat is what's called a, a geostationary satellite so essentially that's a satellite that looks at the same region of the earth at all times so obviously the earth is rotating but this satellite stays rotating with it essentially and looks at the same face of the earth at all times and uh, you mentioned there Liz about how the satellites are as you said uh, you know about 36,000 kilometers away from the earth and the reason these geostationary satellites are that far away is so that they can see the whole disk of the earth all at once rather than if they're if they're close to the earth they'd only see a section of it so they're back far enough that they can see a whole disk of the earth all at once and it's as i said it's focused over uh, the side of the earth that has that has europe and africa so the first of these will launch as i said at the end of this year it'll be a big increase to what we currently get so we'll get full pictures of or full images of the whole disk of earth uh, every 10 minutes so that'll be uh, an increase in, in in availability for forecasters and then for europe uh, we'll have rapid scans of europe every two and a half minutes yeah, so this at will the be... moment i think it's every five minutes is that that's right, right yeah. exactly so if you're say Liz, if you're tracking something like a severe thunderstorm uh maybe a line of thunderstorms that are developing rapidly you're going to be able to see that development in much higher resolution both both in terms of like graphically resolution but also the speed the temporal speed that you'll be able to see uh much more frequently how quickly it's growing and how how maybe section of it's dying or if it's spreading to another location and allow for tracking those storms uh, a lot better and there'll be lots of other additional sort of instruments that weren't presently or uh, previously available. Things like 
uh, well, enhancing some of the things that you've already mentioned, allowing us to look at different cloud types and detect cloud cover and how much rain and, and water content are, are in these different systems. You'll be able to track things like volcanic ash very accurately. We, we can already do that, but this will enhance that. Very important for things like aviation. Uh, looking at dust content in, 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 air, in air masses that might be coming up from, say, the Sahara or coming across from the continent, things like that. And they'll also provide us with profiles of the atmosphere. So not just looking at the surface of the earth or at the clouds, but looking at, say, temperature and humidity readings all the way up through the atmosphere. And this is really important for getting accurate initial conditions for our weather models, as we talked about at the, at the top of the program, getting that sort of uh, observations through the whole layer of the atmosphere, not just at the surface or not just at the top. Tell me about the that there's going to be new lightning imagery um, that will show lightning flashes across Yeah, the this is such a cool sensor. Uh, and, the, and the graphics and videos that are coming out of this are really cool. I'm, I'm quite excited to see this once it goes operational. So it will provide imagery of lightning flashes across its view, and it'll update this every 30 seconds. And what it will do is, like at the moment, we, we do have estimates of, of flashes of lightning if... Um, does that come from the satellite? Like, you know, it, you know I, 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 I always put that up when I have my satellite, you know, that's my, my desktop on my, you know, when I go, when I'm on the bench and forecasting, yes. like I have like a picture of the satellite and then I overlay it with radar and I, I get lightning as well. Like, you know, but where's, I actually don't know where that light is. That's right. Yeah. Up. Well, well, it's a good question. At, at present, it's a ground-based system okay. for detecting lightning uh, based on a series of essentially radio mass. And they detect the radio frequency emitted by a strike of lightning. And uh, they can uh, locate the rough approximate position of where that strike took place. And for people who are familiar with the MetAaron app, you can see those strikes as little crosses, usually red if they've been recent, and then they sort of yellow or green for less recent flashes on the uh, on the radar imagery that's where they sh they show up on the app but the issue with those is that they really only detect uh, lightning bolts that go from the cloud down to the ground which is only a fraction of the total lightning that takes place i mean there's lots of lightning flashes that take place within the cloud and from cloud to cloud and as a forecaster a sort of a metric or a good way of knowing if a storm is intensifying is by an increase in the total lightning so you want to be able to have a, an idea of, of how much lightning is taking place all over, not just the flashes from, from the cloud to the ground. So these new satellite, this new satellite detector can detect total lightning. It's got a very, very accurate sensor. It does all this very clever processing to detect these flashes from space, and it will, it will deliver sort of a picture of those then every 30 seconds. And there's some really, really nice graphics as how this will look. Uh, they're able to detect sort of bolts of lightning that are moving across cloud tops and then striking, you know, several kilometers away and really giving a picture of how dynamic a lightning storm can be. Um, but it will be a very useful tool for, as I said, for sort of tracking these severe storms and working out if they are intensifying um, because of the fact they're, they're looking at total lightning and that it's updating so quickly. You'll have new data every 30 seconds. And is this like the first time that they've used lightning imagery in this way um, or... Have the Americans tried it with, the, they have satellites over the GOES um, east Ex and west. Exactly, yeah. Are they already doing that? Or? They are already doing it. And it's where some of the imagery is coming from to, to sort of get an idea of how the one over Europe will work. So uh, it's the same, a similar idea. And because, of, as you can imagine, over, uh, certainly say over the US, uh, the central plains, they get huge amounts of, of thunderstorms and, and, and lightning flashes. So uh, it's been very effective there, again, for sort of tracking these storms and for 
recognizing when a storm is intensifying. So it'll be the same principle um, on the satellite that will be that will be uh, situated over Europe. And uh, when when is this satellite going up? You know? so, so the first one goes up at the end of this year, all going to plan. So there will be sort of three in this constellation, as they call it. So the first one goes up at the end of this year, uh, and that will have the new sort of imager and the, and the lightning imager, etc. And then there will be a second one that will go up that has this uh, sensor for taking the profiles of temperature and water vapor, things like that. And then they'll send up a third one, which is essentially a copy of the uh, of the imaging satellite, which will be in a, a sort of another location and will also take like rapid scans of Europe, things like that. But it'll be a, a massive increase. You'll be snowed under with data lists for forecasting <laughs> and uh, you just have to decide how to use it all. Yeah, which can be challenging, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, <laughs> and useful for us, these, these rapid updates will be very useful for what we refer to as, as now casting, which is becoming sort of a more, there's a bit more focus coming on now casting now more recent years with people looking for data really up to the minute and who want to make decisions short-term decisions on, on what's happening that term now casting would you be able to, to describe what that is liz when you're when you're dealing with it yeah like now casting is it's um it's kind of refers to weather forecasts with lead times of you know short lead times like um we're not talking like you know 24 hours or, or even 12 hours we're talking like zero to six hours it's kind of most, it'll be most relevant um, to severe or disruptive weather. Basically, this is just to kind of keep pace with the societal demand for accurate, relevant information on severe or disruptive weather. That like, you know, when severe and disruptive weather is happening, people want up-to-date um, information. What's, what's the latest? And, you know, like I've definitely found that in the forecast room over the last number of years when they're when we've got a big storm, like, you know, we're, we're constantly updating the warning. We're constantly updating the forecast. Um, and uh, now casting um, is kind of developing uh, tools that will help us to kind of do those weather forecasts with the very short lead times of zero to six hours. And, you know, with climate change and everything on track to lead to higher intensity and sometimes higher frequency of severe storms, um, now casting is, is really going to be one of those things that we'll be using more and more. Um, it's it's kind of like a um, a last line of defense against severe events for protecting lives and livelihoods. Like, I mean, I think it's it's most like you know mostly being used at the moment um, in the United States. Like you know, with um, it's definitely proved um, to be really important for forecasting um, severe thunderstorms and tornadoes and sending out those tornado warnings. Like you know, they've They've developed their now casting tools to to kind of give to give that up to date information because obviously those it's really those small scale weather systems of course like, yeah you know, yeah that that now casting really can help with um, if you've got that thunderstorm or that uh, uh, convective front going through rather than like the big storm yeah but like <laughs> um, no of course because you hear that on on those days like where it's like say during the summer, if there's a lot of like convective activity around, the forecast will be sort of a region where a thunderstorm may develop. Um, but you can't specify exactly, you know, what county the, the storm is going to develop. But now casting then is another tool to zone in on that. Then when you see, okay, a storm is starting to develop, this now for the next three hours is where we think it's going to go or, or where you need to, to take heed of it. 
yeah cer certainly like tracking it like you know because you know that's one of the things like going back to you know the modeling that we talked about at the start um the model models are really good at um forecasting these you know these big systems you know like a low pressure system can be like 500 to a thousand kilometers across and like you know model can spot that like five days in advance you know and or you know seven days in advance it knows it's coming but um you know a thunderstorm is a much smaller um thing well like you know the ones that we get here can only maybe just be less than 2.5 kilometers across or mm. something like that so you so to model that um is very difficult and it's only within a short period short period of time that that the model can really just get a handle on it even for more mundane things as well i'm sure that people would make use out of it as well right even just you know people maybe if there's a a match on a crow park or some kind of event that is going to be weather delayed they want to know when is this rain going to clear or uh maybe the road network or something would be interested to know when these showers are going to clear or or as i mentioned earlier when when can i hang out the washing is this rain going to clear in in, in a couple of hours you know yeah i mean like you know now casting like will rely heavily on like it relies heavily on what is happening right now you know the radar is is a really important um part of of, uh, of um, the developments in now casting i think there's there there is um an ongoing research project uh um using satellite and radar data to produce very short range forecasts of precipitation going on at the moment in met Aaron. that's right yeah. i think you know a bit more about that than i do well i i was involved years ago with like an initial version of that where we we took the radar image and essentially um advanced it forward about three hours in time using um data from the from from the from our weather models essentially like sort of wind data from the weather models or airflow data but um yeah our research division are working on a, a new model uh, that will as you say i think use both maybe radar and satellite data and use um our new weather models which are being updated very frequently so you'll be able to get a more accurate sort of uh, short very very short range uh, forecast for that and again, just making use of, of all these these new sources of data that are coming down the line from from satellite and from radar. Yeah, there's just like an ever increasing amount of data out there. Like you know, from you know, in the forecast room, we like we talk about Twitter. Like you know, people uh, tweeting their pictures of um of of where the weather is happening. But um, there's other stuff as well. Like you know, just not just social media <laughs> um, that um. That gives an ever increasing amount of um, of data, and some of them can be used for weather forecasting. Um, Absolutely, you, yeah. Like one of those, I think one of those is um, drones. Is that right? Drones for sure. Yeah, drones are um, a quite a exciting application. Um, I was at a a workshop there a, a, a little while ago on um, using drones for for weather and climate. They're very useful for measuring conditions in the boundary layer. So the boundary layer is basically the first kilometer of the atmosphere, the, you know, the first kilometer high of the atmosphere, the section of the atmosphere that we live in. And uh, drones can be used for taking sort of high resolution and frequent measurements in the boundary layer. And this is really important for short range forecasting because there aren't a lot of observations, certainly not regular observations in that layer. We do have weather balloon measurements uh, for example, here in Ireland, we have two weather balloon launches from uh, Valencia every every day. However, I said that it's only twice per day and their cost per flight is actually quite high. Whereas if you have something like a drone that is automatically set up to fly up, say, to a kilometer's height, uh, you could have it set to do it once per hour, for example, flies up, takes measurements as it goes, and then lands back down. 
and the, 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 the data is transmitted and you're getting then say regularly hourly updates of, of values within the boundary layer. So that's, that's a, an application that's been looked at very closely by weather services. It's also been used for investigating things like severe weather systems. So having drones that are being deployed in and around severe weather. A couple of years ago, when myself and, and Paul Downs were storm chasing in America, which we, we talked about in a previous podcast, there was a research group there using all sorts of radar and sensors, but also drones to measure these big uh, tornado producing thunderstorms. That kind of reminds me of um, Twister, you know, the, the movie where they had... Uh had the, the little helicopter. Uh, um. I, I think a lot of inspiration has been taken <laughs> from that film, for sure. I think it's inspired a lot yeah, of a lot of I, PhDs. Yeah, yeah, I think as well, though, but with um, with hurricanes as well, because the Americans fly the, the planes into the center of the hurricane, they drop. Um, yes, drop zones drop into zones, the yeah. hurricane to, to yeah. kind of like figure out what's going on inside, because it's obviously too scary to fly through the bottom of a hurricane because strong <laughs> winds are so they're up they're up high where the winds are light and they're dropping the drop zones to see what the wind speeds are for yeah. sure uh, some and, and that's actually an application been discussed with drones as well uh, flying them up and having them having drop zones mounted on them so drop zones essentially these little packages of of weather sensors and they would uh, release them when they're up high and then they float down on a parachute taking taking measurements as they go but the, would the drones have a picture as well like they could, could for sure i mean absolutely like the technology is there the technology is developed uh, you know there are companies who are actively researching and developing these things for these applications it's the legislation that has to kind of catch up as, and, and quite rightly as you can imagine when you have these things flying up you need to have legislation as to where they fly it can't be close to you know obviously airports or anywhere where you could have commercial yeah, or, or, or big problems <laughs> exactly exactly so that that still needs to be ironed out and worked out but it's a it's a really uh, really exciting area for sure but even even more far more mundane uh, sources of 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 data are out there and can be used i mean say enthusiasts members of the public who have weather stations in their in their own gardens uh, that's something that's been looked at very closely in fact we've already started looking at that data there's a there's a there's a network called the wow network which is a weather uh, observations website network which takes um data from volunteer members of the public who have their own weather stations and they send in the information and that's been looked at to use for uh for ingesting into weather models and used for uh, tracking weather storms and things like that aircraft and, and in the for and in the forecast room as well like you know just okay looking at those observations yeah. um like you know they might not be quality controlled but they can give an idea if you know our weather station isn't picking it up but um but if you know there's a private weather station that's picking up some severe weather um you know we we'll take note of that and and um and react accordingly absolutely yeah it's the, the there are many different sources like including obviously anything to do with transport planes and boats all have uh weather sensors on them and a lot of these are already being ingested into into weather models um quite interesting cars the the more the cars become connected uh you know cars that have say data links or internet connections uh, can be used as as weather monitors most of them say have, have temperature sensors so you can look at air temperature or road temperature for some of them one really interesting application I saw, which I think was in, in Norway, where they were doing research on the use of the windscreen wiper. And if a car had its wiper switched on, uh, that, that piece of data would be sent up and they would use that to say, okay, there's rainfall happening here. 
and that's based on obviously you know say you've got several cars with their wipers on so you know sort of the extent of the rainfall and then get an estimate of intensity by what setting the wipers were switched to and so obviously you're not using this data on its own but you can use it as a way of you know tracking or seeing that line up with your model or giving warning to other motorists for example to say there's like bad weather up ahead or something like that um so there's a whole a whole bunch of, of creative ideas that are coming with with all this data that's flowing through yeah i mean it, it's kind of just reminds me of like you know the, it just the simple stuff like you know google maps being able to tell you that there's you know traffic uh, exactly. you know like on your route and all that sort of stuff and i suppose all of that information is out there now with people with smartphones and everything i mean why not use it for, <laughs> for um improving weather forecasts there's there's so much to to kind of um to explore really part of that is um artificial intelligence isn't yes. it it's, it's kind of yeah. like the this whole idea of um machine learning and that's something that's um that is being used um in weather forecasting as well for sure yeah i mean when we say artificial intelligence you know essentially we're saying we're, we're using a computer system to automatically perform some tasks or to make decisions and then um, when you mentioned machine learning there so essentially that's like extending that system to try and learn from its previous experiences or by showing it a whole bunch of examples and having it learn from those or learning essentially means like optimizing its performance and, and that's what's called machine learning and, and as you say Liz, i mean that's you know, present more and more in day-to-day -day life and, and also in, in in weather and and climate and they're they're there are a number of different applications already where it's been used. One of the one of the really sort of cool and interesting ones is um, in feature identification, which I'm sure you would find. Yeah, I'm sure you would find <laughs> really useful. Is it's it's essentially highlighting uh, risk areas or areas from things like say satellite imagery where your your artificial intelligence has recognized that there's severe weather developing so it's a feature that may be say for example a rapidly developing thunderstorm or perhaps say a sting jet which is a severe region of winds that you can get on the on the tail end of some of these big atlantic storms your ai system will have been trained to look for these systems or, or sort of more importantly like the the conditions that can lead to the development of these conditions and then for it to highlight that area on on the bit of imagery so that a forecaster it, its atten attention is drawn to it i mean they may have noticed it already but it just ensures that attention is given to regions that are risk regions or where there's a there's the chance of some high impact weather uh, developing um, and that's there's, there's a lot of research going on in that it's a, a really cool field hmm. and and also even mundane things like you mentioned there about how you know you, you already look at some of that data that comes in from public weather stations but it's not you're not sure of the quality of it so uh, one thing is using ai to quality control that data so for example comparing data from one of those weather stations with other values from stations nearby to see okay does this look like that it's it's in line with what the weather is doing at the moment or looking at how this station has performed historically, maybe like during these certain types of weather conditions, it always gives too much rain or usually reads too cold or something like that. So it's it's becoming more and more prevalent and it's really uh, allowing more intelligent use of all the data that is that is coming in at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it'd be, I think it'd be sometimes easy for, for forecasters to feel threatened by all this new technology you know it'd be putting me out of a job and 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 all this sort of stuff but i think you know you really have to 
just grasp the future and and um you know the only constant in life is change and how the forecaster role is going to to morph and how the how a national weather services um role is going to develop is going to change and and um you know with all this new technology and um all these different ways of communicating you know rather than feeling threatened by it should be really excited about it <laughs> absolutely i think the more you dig into these as well that there's always the role needed for the forecaster both for so the, the, the importance of local knowledge and experience for knowing when these models and systems don't perform that well and also uh, for giving feedback that these systems don't improve unless the forecasters are there to say actually this system did not this the, the model did not work in these conditions so so the forecaster role is is, is super important and, and will continue to be i think So that brings us to the end of this episode. Thanks for listening. Um, I'm actually not going to be on the podcast for a little while because I'll be concentrating on other projects. Well, we'll be looking forward to having you back, Liz, and wishing you all the best for everything ahead over the next few months. So you can subscribe to the MetAaron podcast wherever you get your podcasts and do check out some of our previous episodes. As we mentioned, there were several referenced in this most recent episode and there's lots of good content there. Uh, I'll be back with a new episode next month. So until then, thanks for listening and take care. The Met Aaron podcast is presented and researched by Dr. Noel Fitzpatrick and Liz Walsh. Production and editing was by Janie Lanagon.